Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Stripping down science. The Naked Scientists. Hello, it's Sunday the 17th of April. Welcome to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith. And with me, Diana O'Carroll. This week we're discussing gene therapy. You might remember the story of the boy who was forced to live in a sterile bubble because he had no immune system. Well, researchers can now overcome conditions like this by giving patients healthy copies of the genes that cause their diseases. And with us this week are two pioneers in this field, Adrian Thrasher and Tim Cox, who are here to tell us how they're doing it. That's on the way. Diana. Thanks, Chris. And in the news, how the odd um and er boosts babies' learning power and how does a bike remain balanced? Plus, we've got the answer to this somewhat hard-to-stomach question of the week. Given the length of a giraffe's neck, does it have trouble throwing up? <laughs> Absolutely lovely. So if you have any other questions for us... You can tweet at Naked Scientists. You can write on our Facebook page. That's at thenakedscientists.com forward slash Facebook. Or you can drop us an email. Our email address is chris at thenakedscientists.com. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider. On the web at ukfast.co.uk. This is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Diana O'Carroll. And we begin with a look at some of this week's top science stories. Ooh, what a nice bed. Look, look at the uh, bed. That's a recording made recently during a piece of research by Rochester University scientist Richard Aslin and his colleagues who think they've stumbled upon an important trick used by toddlers' brains to help them to learn new words. It's based on something called disfluency. In other words, when we say er or um in a sentence. This tends to happen when we're about to say a word which is used less often or could be unfamiliar to the person that we're conversing with. And at the same time, speakers usually change the word the into the. So, for instance, they'll say, I'm going to the uh, supermarket rather than I'm going to the supermarket. Toddlers, it turns out, are very sensitive to these speech patterns and they can use them to pick up new words. We presented to babies side by side on a computer screen photographs of two different objects. One of the objects was well-known by the infant. So, for example, a photograph of a banana. Next to the picture of the banana might be a picture of something like a wrench, an object that children don't have any experience with and they haven't yet learned the name of that object. 
And so what would happen then if the voice that is speaking about those objects says, oh, look, look at the wrench. What we know is that when infants hear a word and they see an object that is an unfamiliar picture, they immediately infer that it refers to this unknown object. What we wanted to know is what would happen if the voice that was speaking about these two objects said something like, oh, look, look at the um, wrench. Now, we know when you say the word wrench that they're going to look at the picture of the wrench. What we wanted to know is where do they look when they hear the, the, uh, the disfluency? If they can use the disfluency to make a prediction about what the next sound that is going to be coming in that sentence, then they're going to predict that it's going to be an unusual sound. And therefore, they should look at the object that is the unfamiliar or novel object. And that's exactly what we found. During that disfluency, before the word has actually been spoken, they are looking at the novel object. And in fact, when the um or er was included in the instructions, the children spent 70% of their time looking at the unfamiliar object, compared with about 50% when the instruction didn't contain any of those hesitations. But what does this actually mean in terms of a child's learning? You are building up an expectation that something important is about to come next, which in the normal course of events, the parent would, of course, eventually retrieve from their memory the, the word that they're trying to, to say, and therefore that word is being highlighted for the child. So not only are they getting a prediction as to an important piece of information is coming next, but then it's priming them to pay particular attention to that information because it's going to be new. It's going to be useful for them in terms of learning the meaning of that particular word. So is there a message in there for parents and teachers and maybe even radio presenters? Normally, you would think that we should speak without disfluencies because it adds uncertainty to the input that the child is receiving. But in fact, what we're showing here is that in this early phase of language development, when you're learning many, many new words, it can actually have a benefit. Now, we're not suggesting that parents should increase their disfluencies, but just the natural process of speaking has disfluencies in it, and parents shouldn't be worried about that fact because in this particular case, it's actually beneficial. Richard Aslin from Rochester University, and he published that work this week in the journal Developmental Science. And so, Diana, now you can talk and say um and ah as much as you like without worrying. You're actually helping people understand. Yeah, I'll try and avoid too many disfluencies, but we'll see. Anyway, this week, researchers have found evidence to suggest that life evolved on land much earlier than previously thought. These fossils come from a key point in evolution where tiny, simple bacterial or prokaryote cells developed features resembling larger, more complex eukaryotic cells, which would make photosynthesis and sexual reproduction possible. So, according to the paper, which is published in Nature, microfossils have already been found that demonstrate life existed in the sea over three billion years ago. But very little is known about early signs of life on land. So Paul Struther of Boston College and colleagues looked at microfossils found in billion-year-old rocks in northwest Scotland's Loch Troradon. 
These life forms they looked at were eukaryotes, organisms whose cells contained complex structures inside cell walls, and they measured up to a gargantuan one millimetre long. And the authors say that because of the presence of structures like a nucleus, chloroplasts and mitochondria, these simple eukaryotes must have lived in fresh water and were exposed to the open air because they have the parts necessary to perform photosynthesis. And the authors argue that it also supports the idea that prokaryotes, so cyanobacteria, evolved first in freshwater habitats and later migrated into the sea. And early cyanobacteria are thought to be the cells which ultimately became chloroplasts in plant cells, or in this case, these early eukaryotes, which are thought to be a precursor to algae. And the authors add that what it could mean is that freshwater habitats are better at encouraging eukaryotic evolution than the sea. Which is very interesting because also we know that the invasion of the land by plants happened about 450 million years ago and these cyanobacteria had the ability to photosynthesise, capture energy from the sun, so the fact they're there first does kind of fit, doesn't it? Yeah, and it kind of reverses the, um, the the general consensus that has been held for a long time is that um, they came from the sea, but it would make much more sense given this new evidence that they came from fresh water on land. Thank you, Diana. We're talking of things that happened a long while ago. Also this week, how our early human ancestors talked their way out of Africa. There's a study marrying up the diversity of the sounds that are used in languages around the world with what genetics tells us about how people migrated out of Africa and across the globe. And it shows, this study, that it was probably the art of conversation that got people moving. Quentin Atkinson, the author of this new study, works at the University of Auckland in New Zealand. Ever since Charles Darwin, it's been recognised that the evolution of languages parallels in many ways the evolution of species. So you get this process of descent with modification, like you get genetic mutations arising, you get what linguists call innovations in languages. And so after a period of time when two populations have been separated, they can no longer understand one another and you get new languages forming, just like you get new species forming when they can no longer breed with one another. So it was with that background, I started looking at global patterns of phoneme diversity, phonemes of sounds in languages that are used to differentiate words with different meanings. So cat has a different meaning to bat because there's a different phoneme at the front of it. And one of the key pieces of evidence supporting an African origin for our genetic ancestry is that genetic diversity is highest in Africa and it decreases with distance from Africa. So you wonder whether the same thing would apply to language? That's right. That pattern fits with an idea called the serial founder effect. We expect an ancestral population in the homeland to have been there for quite a while and generated a lot of genetic diversity and during an expansion small groups will break off from that ancestral population and carry a subset of the diversity with them and then as the expansion continues small groups will break off from those groups and carry a further subset of diversity so the further out you go from the origin the less diversity you see. How do you counteract the effect though of population size because obviously with a small population you have a small gene pool you're also going to get a, a small phoneme pool, small number of ranges of different word sounds. That could be an effect of a bottleneck in a population. It could also be just the fact that a population happens to be small anyway. So how do you get around that? So part of the motivation for looking at a serial founder effect in phonemes was that 
population size has been shown to be correlated with the number of sounds that a language uses. So languages with more speakers use more sounds. So that fits with this idea of a founder effect. So I was looking for global decrease in the number of phonemes used around the world from some origin point. And you're right that one of the things you need to consider if you're looking at that is that this is not just a result of differences in modern population sizes, so that if some parts of the world happen to have, on average, smaller populations, maybe any global patterns we see is just a direct result of that. So one of the things I did was control for modern population size and look to see whether we still find a, a global decrease in phoneme diversity with distance from an origin. The origin turned out to be Africa. How many different languages did you consider around the world? In total, uh, 504 languages. So they're part of a data set called the World Atlas of Language Structures. Presumably that you've got the whole world represented in terms of on a map of where people went, Mm -hmm. we think, in evolutionary time, and you've got the languages from those sorts of territories. And when you marry the two together, do they agree? Yeah, the, the pattern that we see in the phoneme diversity, the number of phonemes, matches quite nicely with the pattern we see in genetic diversity. So just like the genetic diversity points to an African origin, so too it seems does the phoneme diversity. So this is a sort of another strand of evidence that supports the genetic diversity. People have also done this uh, with Helicobacter pylori, haven't they? People in Cambridge have done that, actually. And Mm -hmm. also the facial phenotypic appearances. So this is another strand of Mm -hmm. evidence. But does it actually show anything that those other investigations didn't? Or does it fill any gaps that they were incapable of, of addressing? I really think it does, because this is not some genetically inherited thing we're tracking. This is language. It's culturally inherited to the extent that our cultural ancestry, like our genetic ancestry, can be traced all the way back to Africa, which I think is quite remarkable. And that means that just as we're one big genetic family, we're also one big cultural family. But an even more fundamental question must be then, are you suggesting that the thing which catalyzed the out-of-Africa migration the thing that led to humans taking over the whole world was that we actually got modern language. Because if the root of all languages is Africa and then they slowly diversify from there, that would suggest that people had to have that core language function first before they went anywhere. That's right. It looks like from these results I've presented that humans carried with them in their toolkit from Africa language and all the advantages that confers in terms of cooperation and coordination. And I think... Language, therefore, could have been key in giving us the competitive advantage that we obviously had over a lot of the other hominid species around, which we ultimately obliterated. Quentin Atkinson. He's based at the University of Auckland in New Zealand, and he published the work you've just been hearing about this week in the journal Science. Diana. Also, a team working in the USA and Holland have this week come one step closer to working out how a riderless bicycle remains upright. So as you know, this only happens when the bike is moving, so there must be some interesting mechanical forces at work keeping it from toppling over. So what happens when the bike coasts is that each time it starts to fall to one side, the front wheel will steer into the fall and so correct it, making the bike upright again. 
So for some time, the conventional wisdom has been that two principal forces cause this corrective steering to occur. The first of these is a sort of precession, otherwise known as gyroscopic torque. This is when something spinning in a particular direction provides a force that acts on the axis of the spin. So, for example, if you have one of those spinning tops where you pull a piece of string to make it spin, the spinning motion keeps it upright as gyroscopic forces pull on the axis to create a sort of self-correcting balance. So that's what keeps upright and when the top's not spinning it simply topples over on one side and for a long time it's been thought that the same effect happens on the bicycle wheel. Now the second effect is the caster effect and you see this on a shopping trolley uh, where when you steer it around corners the wheels appear to get dragged around behind the direction you're steering it in and this is because they're set on posts which are, if viewed from the side, in front of the position where the wheel meets the ground. And the same thing is effectively true of a bike because the place where the wheel meets the ground is actually slightly behind the steering axis. So publishing in Science, this new team built a bike that counteracted these two effects to see if it would still stay upright when How moving. How did they get around the gyroscope effect okay, with so, the wheel going round? Yeah, so, uh, so what they did is they constructed a frame and it had wheels that were sat above the wheels on the ground and they spun in exactly the opposite direction at the same speed. And so that would counteract that gyroscope. Oh, two wheels, effect. one above the other, yeah. one spinning one way, one and the, the other, other, therefore way. you completely counteract a exactly. gyroscope effect. Yeah. And what happened? Oh well, they had they still had another thing to deal with as well because uh, there was this other caster effect. Um, so they had to move uh, the point where the the wheel met the floor relative to the steering axis, so that it was directly above it. So you didn't have this dragging kind of trail effect that you get on a shopping trolley. Um, but what they did, um, what they found was that when they let this funny-looking bike roll off on its own, it stayed perfectly upright, no problem. So those two claims of why a bike stays upright when it's moving are wrong, right. effectively, or, or they, yeah. they make a minimal contribution. Exactly. So, so why is the bike staying upright? Um, well, they've, they've had, got a few other ideas, and they think it's probably something to do with mass distribution, but uh, the sort of point about this is that um, we don't really fully understand the mechanics of what keeps a bike upright, so potentially you could improve existing bikes' designs and, and make them absolutely fantastic and self-writing. And maybe even make the ideal circus bike, which is almost impossible, if not impossible, to ride by overcoming, if you can find out what the thing is that keeps it upright, overcoming that so it is impossible to ride. Yeah, maybe that's just due to big shoes, though, you never know. Maybe. Well, to finish us off this week, the subject of schizophrenia, um, because a paper published in the journal Nature this week has made a big step forward in our understanding, potentially, of this disease, which affects about 1% of the population, and about 85% of cases have family members who are also affected, so it's strongly genetically influenced. But other than that, it's very hard to understand what sets apart the person with schizophrenia versus the person who doesn't have schizophrenia. So people who have this condition develop hallucinations, they see things or hear things that only they can experience, and then they develop delusions to explain why they're having these experiences. But other than that and those symptoms, we don't really know what's causing it. But what a group of scientists in California, this is Fred Gage and his colleagues at the Salk Institute, have done is to use genetic techniques to take skin samples from four patients with schizophrenia they then genetically reprogram the skin cells called fibroblasts to make them into initially cells called iPS cells or induced pluripotent stem cells that they can then, with chemical treatments, turn back into 
brain cells in the dish. And by culturing these brain cells in the dish, they can then begin to understand and test them to see how they differ from control cells made from healthy people who don't have schizophrenia in order to see what the differences are. And what they have found so far is that the schizophrenic cells make far fewer connections to each other and to other cells. They put out far fewer outgrowths these are neurites, effectively little extensions of the cell surface that make these connections. And genetically, they're very different too. They did a genetic comparison of the levels of different genes, whether they're on or off, between the schizophrenic cells and the healthy patients. And what they find is 596 genes, which have different levels of gene activity between the two. And only 25% of those genes they found had been changed were known previously. So 75% of them were entirely new discoveries. And then they did a really interesting experiment because they started adding to these cells in the dish some of the drugs, antipsychotic medicines, that we give to patients who have schizophrenia to see what effect that would have on what the cells did in the dish. And they found, actually, that one of the drugs they tested, loxapine, could reset the activity of many of the genes which were different in the schizophrenic cells. And so one of the, the lead authors, Kristen Brennand, uh, actually said about this paper, these drugs are doing a lot more than we thought they were doing. And for the first time, we now have a model system that allows us to study how antipsychotic drugs work in live, genetically identical neurons from patients with known clinical outcomes. And this means we can start correlating pharmacological, in other words, how drugs work, type effects, with the patient's symptoms. So in other words, in the future, you could use this technique and test how a drug is going to influence a patient even before you've given the patient the drug. And that's important because many of these drugs actually have quite serious side effects. It's absolutely incredible stuff. I I can't wait to see what kind of drugs they're going to come up with with this new system. Um, And if you'd like to read up on anything we've covered this week, the references and transcripts for each of the news stories we've discussed are online, and that's at thenakedscientists.com forward slash news. Keeping you abreast of the world's best science, The Naked Scientists. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Diana O'Carroll. Time now for this week's Planet Earth, and Sue Nelson has been along to find out about a European Space Agency mission called SWARM to study the Earth's magnetic field from orbit using a constellation of three satellites. She joined engineers Julia Ryan and Ralph Cordy from Astrium UK's Division of Earth Observation Science inside the Andromeda Clean Room. When you get used to the typical run of satellites coming through a factory like this, I think of the big telecommunications satellites as being like London buses. Well, for me, the swarm satellites were like long, sleek, dark racing cars. Why was it built in that particular way? Why does it physically look so different? Well, I guess there are two principal reasons for that. One is the environment, the orbit that the satellites are going to go into. That's a relatively low orbit, and it means that they have to be sleek, very slim, to help reduce the pressure of the residual atmosphere at the height it's orbiting at. And the other reason is that it needs to keep its sensors, its extremely precise and sensitive magnetic sensors, as far away from any disturbance, electronic disturbance on the satellite as possible. And therefore it's very long and actually extends its length by a four-metre-long boom. This four-metre-long boom, then, is is the reason that it has been described as a giant mechanical rat, which, considering 
you and I both see it more as a sleek racing car seems slightly unfair. It does seem a bit unfair, but the tail of the rat, the boom, if you like, is really very vital. It's on there that we support what's called a, a, a vector magnetometer, the really heart of each satellite, the device that is providing the very precise measurements, not just of the size, but of the very detailed direction of the magnetic field that each satellite is flying through. But because they're measuring the Earth's magnetic field, that made the construction slightly different to how you would normally make a spacecraft. We've had to be careful in every way we've been working, in our choice of materials for these satellites and in the techniques we we use. For example, we've got to be careful that nothing that we use is going to generate its own disturbing magnetic field. So the materials we choose far from being the typical materials we would use for a a telecommunications satellite, we've had to build these out of carbon-reinforced plastic. We've had to use ceramic materials to form a kind of optical bench on which to support the vector magnetometer. Uh, The tools that we use to do work on the satellite, we've had to make sure that those contain no residual magnetism themselves. Julia Ryan, you worked on the assembly, integration and testing part of the campaign for the Swarm satellite. What sort of testing did it involve? The most environmentally disturbing part of a satellite's life cycle is the launch because being on top of the rocket it gets shaken around a lot and subjected to a lot of noise. In order to make sure that it can survive that we have to do simulations on the ground using computers and then test it afterwards. Often all the components of a satellite aren't put together until launch. So how do you test a satellite when it perhaps doesn't have all the instruments on board? Well, when we're testing the structure, we use mass dummies to represent the different instruments on board. These will be blocks of typically sort of metal or plastic to represent the general size and weight of, of each instrument. And these bolt into the same inserts that we would bolt the actual equipment into. And it gives a representative mass and a dynamic response of the spacecraft when we test it. You mentioned metal there. Did the, the metals and the choice of metals on the spacecraft itself have to be very particular to avoid the induction of magnetism, which would then... You don't want that because it would affect the instruments and what they're trying to measure. Yes, that's right. All of the metal components of the structure, for example, the brackets and the fasteners themselves, all had to be made out of titanium, whereas we would normally use perhaps aluminium or sometimes even stainless steel. These parts were made out of titanium to reduce the magnetic effects. Ralph, the three swarm satellites are due for launch next year. Will they be launched in stages? No, in fact, they're going to be launched all together from one rocket from northern Russia, and they're going to be put together into an orbit over the Earth's poles, very close to the Earth's poles, two of them at a slightly lower altitude, flying almost in tandem, almost side by side, in fact, around the Earth, with the other one a little bit higher and slowly drifting away over time to separate them in time and space from each other. Dr Ralph Cordy and Julia Ryan from Astrium UK with Sue Nelson. There's also a longer version of that interview on the Planet Earth podcast and you can find it at thenakedscientists.com forward slash planet earth. Thank you very much, Diana. Still to come, how scientists have developed a way to recover waste energy from the environment. That's next. And also gene therapy, how scientists are using modified viruses to deliver healthy copies of genes to patients with inherited diseases. If you'd like to get in touch with us, email chris at thenakedscientists.com. 
For Naked Engineering this week, Dave Ansell's been finding out how to solve the problem of powering the tiny nanoscale devices like medical implants that are currently dwarfed by the batteries needed to supply them. Helping to solve this problem is Dr Zhongming Wong from Georgia Institute of Technology. In the past 15 years, I devote my whole time to do nanotechnology, make things smaller, better, high performance, hopefully cheaper. But when the things become too tiny, small, having a battery drive it may not be the adequate choice. If you have a battery that's substantially large, that means the whole system is large. How do we miniaturize the size of battery? That's one way. But the other way is, can we have energy from environment? Because the power consumption of the device is small, the energy harvest may be enough to drive this. It's a problem that as a device shrinks, the amount of power it uses doesn't shrink as much as its volume. So the equivalent battery wouldn't be big enough to keep it running for a long time. That's a correct. How are you going to replace these batteries? So what we're going to do is that because the power consumption in a range of microwatt to milliwatts, that's a thousandth to a millionth of a watt, that's the power need to drive this kind of device. So what are we going to do is that because this working environment that exposed to light, heat, to mechanical vibration, to any kind of disturbance we experience every day. So can we convert those kind of small energy to drive this? I guess you're going to have to use different techniques to absorb different types of energy. So how are you going to go about it? Uh, solar and thermal are the most popular research today people work on for large-scale applications. But when you have a tiny nano devices, this device is not always under the sun. It could be implanted inside biological system or hide in a room in the dark. There's no sun. But there's always have mechanical vibration. Like I talk to you, my, my voice is a vibration. Can we convert this into electricity to power this? So, so how much power actually is the? The measure is by measure different source. For example, you have ultrasonic wave, you have mechanical actions. For example, uh, when you drive a car and inside a tire, there's a lot of mechanical disturbance. When you walk in your shoes, you, you're tapping your shoes back and forth. Those are all mechanical energy. Just let me give you an example. How much energy each of us has? Okay, you're, you're tapping your finger, there's milliwatts. Your breathing is one watt. You're walking 67 watts. If you can have the fraction of that one, that's enough to draw, to power your personal electronics. So you're just powering them from energy, which is just being wasted all the time. Normally, it just gets turned into heat. Exactly. So how practically are you looking at harvesting this energy? Use uh, nanowires. How tiny nanowires? The diameter is about five hundredth to a thousandth of your hair width. The length is about uh, a tenth of a hair width. And then we put this on a variety of substrate to convert a tiny physical motion into electricity. And we can generate today 3 to 5 volts output. What's 3, three volts? 2 AA battery volts. It's 3 volts. What's the power? Power we can reach microwatt to milliwatts. You say that's still small, but for a lot of industry application, they're looking for that range. So how do these um, nanowires actually generate electricity? This nanowire is not just a general anywire. It is a material called zinc oxide. It has a property called piezoelectric property. You say, what it is? Piezoelectric is that something you apply a force or pressure that produces a voltage inside this crystal. That voltage drives the electron to flow. 
That's the way you convert mechanical energy into electricity. So this is working on the same principle as the gas lighters, um, where you deform a crystal that produces the thousands of volts you need to produce a spark, and then that spark lights your gas. But in this case, you're using tiny um, nanofibers of a similar material. Um, when these are bent, they all add together to produce a useful voltage and useful current. So when you've perfected these nanofibers, where are we actually going to see them? This is a platform technology. Just like wherever you need a battery, you need these things. I'll give you a number of areas. First one, environmental detection. Are there any toxic gases present before we can smell? So you can make this thing self-powered system, sensor system. You can distribute around. So environmental monitoring, how do you track animal? How do you track people? How do you track the product you shipped? So with all of these, the major limiting factor on doing them is the batteries rather than the actual technologies to do the detecting or the tracking. If you dispose a lot of battery on the ground, the environmental damage you're going to face in the years to come is going to cost you a lot more. The other application is for medical purposes because implant medical devices, are you going to use battery to drive this one? Today's any material used for battery are biological, fairly toxic. Look for the more national security. If you have a thousand mile of border, how do you going to check those borders? So essentially, if you can make detectors so cheap that you can just throw them away and they will keep running for years on their own, it's very easy to build a huge sensor network. We're going to future make it a sensor unit like a bean size. We can distribute millions of this around this one. Let's say thirty percent, fifty percent failed. It doesn't matter because as long as have half them works, they're all independent. That's called sensor network work independently, self-sufficient. So we call it self-powered nanosystem, self-power system. You don't need a battery. This work independently, wirelessly, by itself. Shonling Wong from the Georgia Institute of Technology exploring new ways of using kinetic energy from gusts of wind or wasted energy inside moving tyres. And actually there's a video which Mira Senthalingam has made of that interview. You can find that online at nakedscientist.com forward slash engineering. Still to come, we'll be talking about gene therapy. So if you have any questions, send us an email, chris at thenakedscientist.com. Laying the facts bare. The Naked Scientists. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with Chris Smith and with Diana O'Carroll. An important group of diseases are those that occur when a person inherits a defective form of an essential gene, and this can cause tissues and organs to fail. And historically, there's been very little that could be done to cure people with this sort of problem. But now that's changing, and a number of techniques now exist to help people who suffer from some of these sorts of disorders. One of the pioneers in this field is Professor Adrian Thrasher. He's from Great Ormond Street Hospital, and he's with us. Hello, Adrian. Hello. So first of all, tell us, Adrian, what are the sorts of diseases that you're looking at? Uh, we're interested in patients who are born with uh, inherited defects of their immune system. So I guess the most familiar one to um, many people is the so-called bubble babies who are born without any immunity and who are very susceptible to common or garden viruses. What causes that to happen? There are key genes that are involved in uh, the growth and development of the immune system, and if these genes have mistakes in them, mutations in them, then, then the, the immune system doesn't develop properly. So the, these patients are often born without any uh, lymphocytes, for example, that, uh, that fight infection. The white blood cells. Right. So is it fairly easy 
to identify what the gene is that's causing that. Presumably this is not a whole cluster of genes that are affected at once. This is a single gene which goes wrong, which then causes those people to have that problem. Yeah, that's right. Ten years ago we knew of a couple of genes that uh, cause this type of disease, but now we've identified most of them. There are still a few out there to be identified, but we can pretty much identify the defective gene in the majority of patients now. But when a person has this disease, have they got just one gene which is not functioning or have they got a, a, a range of genes at once which have gone wrong? Um, again, it's variable. For the, for the classical, what we would call primary immunodeficiencies, then it's usually just one gene that is defective. But undoubtedly, there'll be more complex immunodeficiencies where several genes will, be, will contribute to that disease. So how are you trying to solve this problem? Well... Over the last 40 years, we've understood and know that bone marrow transplants are a very effective therapy for these diseases. So, so if patients have a good donor within the family, for example, we'd expect to cure these children very effectively. The trouble is if the patients don't have a good donor, uh, and for those children, the, the risks of transplant are considerable. So we and others have been trying to develop gene therapies, which will be one more effective and also safer. I think that was the situation that happened with David Vetter, who was the American boy, wasn't it, who, who was the boy in, in the bubble because a donor couldn't be found in his case. He did end up with a transplant, I think, from his sister, and unfortunately it wasn't a good match. That's absolutely right. So he had the classical bubble boy disease and uh, was maintained within a sterile environment till um, his, his early teens. Um, he underwent a mismatch transplant, actually, and died of complications of that transplant. And those same complications exist today because mismatch transplantation is still difficult. So how does gene therapy help? Gene therapy helps because we, we uh, are not dependent on using another donor, so there is no mismatch. We can use the, the child's own bone marrow. And if we have effective ways, which we do now, of introducing correct copies of the defective gene into that bone marrow in a stable way, then in theory uh, we, we can reconstitute their immunity using that, uh, the, the patient's own cells. So what is the technique? The technique's relatively simple. We harvest the bone marrow from these children uh, under general anaesthetic. The cells are then modified in a special laboratory within the hospital and then after several days within which the cells take up the new genes, the cells are given back to the patients. So in fact, it's a very, very simple procedure. And in some children, we've been able to do that almost as an outpatient. So how do you get the gene that they need, the one that their copy is wrong, mm -hmm. it's defective? How do you get the healthy working gene into their stem cells? There, there are lots of different ways of, of doing that in the laboratory. And the most effective way is to, is to use a virus because viruses have spent millions of years evolving mechanisms of getting genes into, into cells in an efficient way. We know we can modify these viruses to render them relatively safe. And instead of the viruses taking their own viral genetic material into cells, they take the transgene material, the therapeutic gene, into the cells. So you delete or remove the internals of the virus, the That's bit that right. would make it make more virus, put in the therapeutic gene, mm -hmm. then you infect in the dish the person's own cells with that virus. Does it then insert that gene into their own DNA in those cells? 
It depends what sort of disease you're trying to treat. But for bone marrow diseases, we want the gene to to be present in all the blood cells for the lifetime of the individual. So it has to be stable. So for that reason, we need the gene to be stably integrated into the DNA of the hemopoietic stem cells or the blood stem cells in the bone marrow. So yes, it is inserted into the DNA, which means that when the cell divides, that transgene is also copied onto the daughter cells. And can you control where into the person's DNA that virus adds that new healthy copy of the gene? Because presumably you've still got the old defective copy sitting there, you put the new one in somewhere else in their DNA. That is one of the issues. At the moment it's not possible to control that in a, in a very efficient way. Um, the clinical trials that are ongoing don't even attempt to do that. But we know from ongoing laboratory research that it may be possible to do that in a much more precise way and even in some cases may be possible to correct the original genetic defect. That must carry a risk then. If you can't control where the virus delivers its genetic cargo into the person's genome, could that cause problems? Yes, and, and it has done. And we've, um, we've learned from the first uh, clinical trials that were uh, initiated over 10 years ago now that sometimes the transgene can affect the operation of genes that happen to be close by. So, for example, genes that are controlled cell cycle or genes that can uh, initiate leukemia. So there is a, a finite risk of this sort of technology, although the, the sort of trials that we're conducting now have additional strategies whereby we, we, we try and lessen that risk. And when you put the now healthy, hopefully, stem cells back into the person, they home back into the bone marrow, mm-hmm. take up residence and start to make the kinds of blood cells and immune cells specifically that the patient originally lacked. Do they then end up with a mixture of unhealthy cells and healthy cells or do these new modified ones take over most of the cells in the blood? It depends on the condition. So some conditions, the, the patients are born, for example, without any any white blood cells. So any new cell that comes out is obviously a cell that has the transgene in. So in that situation, all the cells will be new functioning transgene-containing cells. In other conditions, we know that all you need to achieve is perhaps 10% of functioning new cells to correct the disease. And so that is what we shoot for. And just to finish us up, Adrian, is this something you have to keep doing many times throughout a patient's life, or is one treatment sufficient? For the sort of diseases we're treating, we're hopeful that a one-off treatment, same as a bone marrow transplant, a one-off treatment should be sufficient for the lifetime of that individual. And how many patients have you helped this way now? We've treated over 20 patients at Great Ormond Street with these types of conditions, and worldwide now I would estimate that probably over 80 patients have received this type of therapy. Who are probably alive thanks to gene therapy. Adrian, thank you. That's Adrian Thrasher from Great Ormond Street in London. He's with us for the rest of the programme. Um, Also, he's asked me to let you know that the British Society for Gene Therapy are holding a public event as part of their conference. It's in Brighton in October, all about the kinds of things that gene therapy can do and some of the things he's been talking about. There are details of that up-and-coming meeting in Brighton on their website. It's at www.bsgt.org. We'll put the details on our website, nakedscientist.com, for you too. Diana. 
Yes, gene therapy may also help in the treatment of what are known as inborn errors of metabolism, where part of a biochemical pathway is faulty or missing. And this can lead to a build-up of toxic waste products inside cells, damaging their function. Professor Tim Cox is from Addenbrooke's Hospital in Cambridge, where he works on these diseases and is developing new ways to treat some of them. So, Tim, tell me what these diseases are. Well, thank you. I mean, these are... um pretty severe diseases and we've taken a a rather tough route to try and deal with them. They affect principally the brain. So these are um, neurodegenerative disorders that damage the neuronal cells and cause a compromise of the person who is unfortunate enough to inherit uh, rare defects that that cause them. So typically in the case of Tay-Sachs disease, which is an almost iconic disease, emblematic of this whole class, the child is a beautiful child, usually born, born quite normal, but after a few months of life starts to develop neurological difficulties with weakness, not able to sit up, problems with sight, swallowing, coordination, and, and it's a very progressive condition indeed. They often go blind, and nearly all the children with this particular condition, which is, as I say, a member of the class, die in the first few years of life. We've seen quite a few patients over the last few years referred and um, it's quite clear that although in some populations this particular one is screened for, it still occurs and it's no respecter of uh, belief or ethics or, or, or anything else. And what other diseases do you work on? The sort of we work on Gaucher disease, which is a condition, an inherited condition, principally affects the blood system, the liver, spleen and, and the blood system, very much like Professor Thrasher was telling you about earlier. But um, for that, there are alternative treatments in many cases. Uh, So you can provide the missing protein, which is an enzyme, that can be targeted to the cells that are deficient, having a little address on it that's posted through the letterbox of the cell membrane to deliver the corrective force, the corrective factor. But for the brain, it's a little more difficult, and those are the ones that we've chosen in the latter phase of our clinical uh, research to, to try and tackle now, because... It's going to take a lot of work. So what have you done to explore new ways of treating uh, Tay-Sachs? At at risk of getting a bomb under my car, um, (laughs) we've had to use an authentic model that can occur, two authentic models that occur in in experimental animals. Um, And uh, though I'm probably taking a risk for saying this, I'm quite happy to do so because I'm clear that, that the reason for doing it is proper. So there are spontaneous models that occur in large animals, in cats and sheep, actually, and also in a flamingo. They're a bit difficult to work on. But, um, <laughs> but, um, but also you can generate these through the, the wonderful work of Sir Martin Evans, who got the Nobel Prize uh, a few years ago for being able to develop targeted mutations in a controlled way in experimental mice, particularly. And those animals that have this defect really develop a very severe disease, a very acute disease, uh, and have to be killed under humane, very careful regulation under humane conditions when they're about 118 days old. But with one dose of gene therapy using a different vector system from what Professor Adrian Thrasher was, was mentioning, um, we're able to, with a single treatment, to have those animals survive to the two-year span that is allowed for a laboratory mouse. And our colleagues in cats have had similar results in, in the United States. You can't work on cats easily in this country, as you realise. So how is the vector different in this case, then? Yes, it's, well, it's a different vector. The virus is called the adeno-associated virus, very tiny little genome. And um, by putting in the proper expression motifs and the correct sequences, you can get expression of what we refer to as pretty well household genes, 
that are needed to deal with the material that accumulates in Tay-Sachs, Gaucher, other related conditions. The great advantage of this class of disorders, although they're absolutely horrible, they do have a particular property in that it's possible to provide a factory, a little source of the corrective factor in a small part, let's say, of the brain, which then diffuses out of the corrected cells locally right throughout the brain and is distributed where it's taken up by a sort of secretion recapture pathway. And this is a very remarkable way of complementing a whole tissue, a massive supercomputer, which is how I think of the brain, other people's anyway, and uh, it can correct it uh, in a wide field. That's really, in a sense, the beauty, a terrible disease, but where there's a little trick of nature which you can exploit for therapeutic purposes. So how far away are you from clinical trials and actually putting this into practice? I'm only four and a half million pounds away. Um, (laughs) But we have applications in to the European Union um, and uh, to, to government bodies in the UK at the moment, having done a great deal of work in combination now, we hope, with the a commercial outfit in in Europe that we hope will be able to grow the GMP, that's say the good manufacturing practice safe vector with all the toxicity done for human use. And we hope very much in a year or two to actually start the first trials in this condition. Well, I I hope your funding proliferates just like your description of the the healthy cells. (laughs) uh, That's Tim Cox and he's from Addenbrooke's Hospital. Thank you very much. Lifting the lab coats on the world's best science, The Naked Scientists. It's The Naked Scientists with Chris Smith and with Diana O'Carroll, our guests this week, Adrian Thrasher from Great Ormond Street Hospital and Tim Cox from Addenbrooke's Hospital. We're talking gene therapy. We have a host of questions for both of you. Um, I don't know who wants to kick off this one, but Tom Curl on Facebook, maybe Adrian, he's asking, because I think you made a sort of mention of this, what does it actually take to turn off a defective gene, Adrian? We usually we don't need to turn off a defective gene, but the, the nature of the mistake um, is usually such that the, the gene is off anyway, so that if we, if we put a functioning gene back in, that fixes the problem. Um, in some cases, it is necessary to turn off uh, a defective gene, and there are several strategies um, that can address it. So, for example, you can address it at the RNA level, so encourage um, RNA degradation by using homologous RNA sequences, or, in fact, you could target enzymes that will make um, deletions within that specific gene and thereby destroy it. I have a question here from Nish Naya, also from Facebook, and uh, he says, are there any problems that may require the replacement or masking of several genes rather than just a single one? Now, Adrian, I know you spoke a little bit about that earlier, so, Tim, I'm going to point that at you. Gosh, thanks. (laughs) Um, Well, it's a very good point that there are conditions, of course, what we refer to as the single gene defects are often uh, not so simple, um, that they have modifying factors and, and other genes which contribute to the development of what we refer to as the disease phenotype, the condition that you see in the patient. But on the whole, there's a primary gene which we've chosen that's defective and which then drives the development of the disease. And when you put that right, one hopes very much that the other things will fade into insignificance. So that's why, starting in this area, we choose the definitive approach to major determinants that predispose to disease. And that's, you know, choose your targets, choose your weapons, 
and choose your targets first, I think. But it's quite true that once we begin to understand diseases that have more complex genetic archaeology, as it were, architecture, then it may be necessary to, to tackle those, Diana, and, and to think about a, a multi-pronged approach focused in each case to the determining locus. But I think that's a little bit far ahead. Let us, let us deal with what we've got in our clinics at the moment before we start tackling the really complex things. Thanks, Tim. I think this is probably best sent your way, Adrian. Don JX on Twitter is asking about inserting genes with viruses and how you actually get them into the right place because you mentioned that you're starting to do some things to optimise where you put into the DNA of the host person the therapeutic gene. Right, so there are several strategies. One is, um, I'll give a couple of examples. So one is to use sort of safe harbours within the genome. So uh, the virus that uh, Tim works on, an associated virus, has uh, has developed a strategy of, it, of inserting itself into chromosome 19 in a very specific locus. Uh, and we can use the mechanisms of that virus to put other genes into that locus. And we, what we believe now is that's a very safe locus to put genes. It's unlikely that any genes inserted there will affect um, surrounding genes. So that's one way of doing it. Um, the second way of doing it is to use uh, a process of homo- homologous recombination. So using homologous um, DNA sequences to actually target a therapeutic gene into the right place. Thank you. Well, we're almost out of time for the general questions. I've got a Twitter here, which is a slightly humorous one, so I will read it from Canine Rules, who says, My main issue with genes is that I can never get the leg length to match the waist, so maybe I carry the fat gene. Who knows? (laughs) Right, we're talking about hard questions. It's time for our question of the week. Diana. Yes, just like the joke, this week it's a rather nauseating question. My name is Anita from Surrey. Given the length of a giraffe's neck, does it have trouble throwing up? Do giraffes get over gravity as easily as the average Saturday night binge drinker? Good evening. Yes, my name is Alan Williams. I'm a professor of veterinary pathology at the vet school here in Cambridge. Well, yes, that's a really uh, interesting question. And the answer is sort of yes and no. If you think about the giraffe's stomach, it's very similar to that of a cow, and it's much more complicated than ours. So a giraffe's stomach has four chambers. The first and second compartments are really big fermentation vats, and the true stomach, their equivalent of our stomach, is the fourth chamber. So when we vomit, the vomit comes out of our stomach and then up the esophagus and obviously out of our mouth. In a giraffe, it would come out of the fourth stomach and it would sort of bypass the third stomach and go into the first and second. And it's extremely rare for the vomit then to go any further than that. So in a sense, giraffes, yes, can vomit, but it's, as I say, very, very rare that it actually comes out of their mouth. Giraffes may vomit, but generally this would be from the fourth stomach into the second. But what could make it throw up in a way that was more visually similar to a human? My name is Dr Jonathan Holmes, and I have been teaching veterinary anatomy at Cambridge University for 35 years. I am not an expert on giraffes as such, but, of course, they are ruminants, like cows and sheep and other types of antelope. That is to say, they chew the cud. They have the capacity to regurgitate food from the main part of the stomach, the rumen, up to their mouths for further chewing to help the digestive process. So the esophagus, the food pipe of giraffes, quite naturally and frequently works in reverse to bring food up to the mouth. There is nothing physical that would stop it being sick. There are some plants that can make cows sick. 
evacuate most of the contents of the rumen out of their mouths. One is a small herb called cowbane, another is the rhododendron. It is not common, but cows that have been eating rhododendrons can be sick, and we must bear in mind that the capacity of a big cow's rumen is anything up to 250 litres, 50 or 60 gallons. So this can be a spectacular sight, especially if a whole herd of cows have found a rhododendron clump. I'm sure there are circumstances which could make a giraffe sick in the same way, and there would always be the danger of rumen contents getting into the lungs and causing a pneumonia. So giraffes do regularly regurgitate food up their very long necks, though it's not quite the same as vomiting. Jonathan also added that giraffe vomit from the rumen would be quite different from our own, since the rumen contents aren't acidic. And on the forum, Rob Maul said that giraffes require more pressure to send the food up to the mouth and that the added pressure can cause some health problems, especially during sedation, if you're doing an operation on them. On Twitter, Doc Turbo said, surely, if they really need to, they just lower their head to the ground like any first-year university student. (laughs) I wouldn't know anything about that. Well, if all that doesn't make you shudder, what about this? Hello, this is Eugeny from Russia, and here is my warm question from cold Russia. Human is a warm-blooded animal, but I want to know how does human's body heat itself? Thank you. How do we turn cake into insulation? How do we keep warm? Answers to chris at thenakedscientists.com. You can join us on the forum, and that's at thenakedscientists.com forward slash forum. You can Facebook us, or you can Twitter at Naked Scientists. Diana O'Carroll, thank you very much. That's it for this week. Thank you to our guests, Adrian Thrasher and Tim Cox, for joining us, and to our wonderful production team, Tom Simpkins, Mira Senthalingam, Dave Ansell and Ben Valsler. We're off for an Easter break next week, so we'll be back the week after that with a special show on what I got up to in Washington, D.C. recently, including better breakthroughs in batteries, fusion power and superprocesses. Have a great Easter, and we'll see you next time. Goodbye. The Naked Scientists comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC, the Natural Environment Research Council and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at thenakedscientists.com. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.